Welcome to Go There, a history and travel podcast. This isn't a history lesson and it's not a travel guide. It's a journey to places in history and to the history of places. Join me as I wander around with my dog Boshi, working, living, learning, and traveling in a car across the United States. In the previous episode, we traveled through Arkansas. Now we cross into Oklahoma, the Sooner State. The state that brought the world a parking meter, voicemail, the shopping cart, Brad Pitt, Ralph Ellison, and Chuck Norris. The state with a weird appendix on its northwestern corner called the Panhandle, which gives it the shape of a meat cleaver. Oklahoma became the 46th state in 1907 after being bought from France as part of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Here we go. Leaving northwest Arkansas, I crossed the state line, which didn't have any welcome to Oklahoma signs. But the Cherokee Nation made up for Oklahoma's bad manners. The Cherokee Nation is not exactly a reservation, even though Oklahoma is the state which is most readily identified with Native Americans. It has one small reservation, that of the Osage Nation, a bit farther west. The Cherokee Nation, though not a reservation, still has legal jurisdiction in the area. I don't really know what that means, but since I have no intention of getting caught up with anybody's legal jurisdiction, let's move along. I kept driving for a few miles until we arrived at Natural Falls State Park. After so many days in the Ozarks, I wasn't really looking for more hiking or camping, but I was behind on my freelance writing and I figured I could catch up on my work without any distractions there. Of course, the distractions are in my head, alongside the voices, so I had to stay another two days. It's a small state park with easy and pretty hikes, and of course, plenty of ticks. It's just great finding out that the camp host is absent because he's recovering from Lyme disease. Fun! I found this out from a person who I had already started to recognize at previous campsites. People that got into their campers and drove off into the sunset, but then just stopped not that far away from where they had started, and then spent weeks there in a sort of limbo. They were always great to meet as they had plenty of info on trails, local landmarks, places to avoid, and they were almost always eager to help. We visited the park's waterfalls, which as the name of the park states, are natural, as opposed to artificial falls, which I'm not quite sure where to find, other than in a kitchen sink. The tallest one is 77 feet high, the second tallest in the state, which may not seem like much until you remember that most of the state is flat. This northeastern corner still gets part of the Ozark Mountains though. It was pretty and had plenty of water cresting over its edges thanks to the abundant rain, although it's still functional during the dry spells as the park has pumps that'll transfer water from pools upstream to the river leading to the falls to ensure it remains touristy all year round. Not so natural after all. Camping was okay, until I realized the limitations of my tent during a windy rain shower on my last night there. One of the aluminum poles shattered in the middle of the night and then poked a hole through the tent. Half asleep, I tried moving things away from the water and I grabbed the other pole trying to balance myself. And then that one shattered too. Hooray! I gave up and slept in the car. Having mostly finished my work, I started driving west to Tulsa. West. I was finally driving in the west. And I got so excited that I missed the correct exit and ended up having to stay on the tollway to Tulsa. That ended up being the only toll I paid on this journey through the US. The Cherokee Turnpike, as it's called, follows a nearly straight line through a narrow valley of the last western hills of the Ozark Mountains. Halfway to Tulsa we cross the Neosho River which connects a string of lakes 
and past these the landscape turns a lot flatter. This isn't as dramatic as it sounds as the more prominent features of the Ozark Mountains are in Arkansas, and your perspective driving west really only shows several forest-covered squat hills beside the turnpike. One weird thing about Oklahoma is that as you drive west it gets flatter, so you feel like you're going downhill but the elevation is actually getting higher as the state makes its uh, gradual and imperceptible approach to the Rockies, which it doesn't quite get to. Still though, it only goes from 1000 to 2400 feet above sea level right before the start of the panhandle. As far as geography is concerned though, I still had a ways to go before reaching the Great Plains. Oklahoma comes from two Choctaw words, Okla and Homa, meaning red people. The red people, Native Americans, are essential to understanding this state. Oklahoma was the end of the Trail of Tears, which was the forcible relocation of the five civilized tribes from the east to what was then designated as Indian Territory in the early 19th century. The Trail of Tears were several routes over land and water over almost a decade starting in 1831 in which the five tribes were moved into the territory, a land quite different from where they had lived for generations. Of the 15,000 Choctaw that had to leave their lands in Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi, only 12,500 were able to make it to their new lands in the Washita Mountains area of southeast Oklahoma. 16,000 Cherokee were expelled from the southeastern woodlands of the United States. Only 12,000 survived to see their new land on the western edge of the Ozarks. 4,000 Chickasaw, also from the southeast woodlands, moved into western lands they had to buy from the Choctaw. 15,000 Creeks from Georgia, who had already been moved to Alabama, now moved to Indian Territory, 3,500 dying on the trail. In several removals over a decade, thousands of Seminoles left Florida and settled in Creek Territory in Oklahoma. And over the next century, 29 other tribes were also forced to move to the territory from all over the country. And it's not like it was empty land before that happened. Of the 39 tribes that are recognized in the state today, five, the Osage, Caddo, Kiowa, Comanche, and Wichita, were already there long before the relocation, in Indian Territory and west of it in the Oklahoma Territory. All expected to live happily ever after. I exited the highway and went into Tulsa, down a street with things I hadn't expected to see in this part of the country or at least in, not in such numbers. There were Vietnamese shops, Hmong churches, Chinese restaurants, block after block of Asian businesses. I looked for a Korean lunch joint and drove to it. I almost never miss an opportunity to have Korean lunch. Mashisoya. As was becoming habit when entering a new state, I headed to a laundromat and a car wash. In the afternoon, I went to a soccer pub affiliated to the American Outlaws fan club. It felt like a proper soccer pub, or as close as you're going to get, 4,400 miles away from Great Britain. There were jerseys, past World Cup paraphernalia, and good beer. There was a sign that said homeless dogs ate for free. I don't think Boshi had yet realized she was homeless, so she might not have accepted. The US was playing Trinidad and Tobago, the team that had left it out of the previous FIFA World Cup. The game was great, in that it was a boring, uneventful 40 minutes and then the US scored 6 goals. I celebrated each goal with a native Tulsian I had just met there. After the game we went for cheesesteak sandwiches at one of Tulsa's drunk eateries, which was amazing. He then let Boshi and me crash at his place. I left Tulsa early that Sunday. But I had just arrived to Tulsa, you may say. Well, my map reading skills aren't that great, 
And when I started driving to Tulsa, I thought the city of Tahlequah was just a few miles southeast of Tulsa. It is not. I had driven 77 miles from Natural Falls to Tulsa, only to realize I now had to drive 60 miles back to get to Tahlequah, and I had to be there that Sunday, as Sunday was a hashing day. Not that kind of a hash, I hadn't reached Colorado yet. It was a day for a Hash House Harriers run, which is an international drinking club with a running problem. It was started in Malaysia way back in 1938 and has since spread to just about every country in the world, and yet most people have never heard of them. A hash run is basically a strictly non-competitive run where you don't know the trail or the endpoint, and you have to find the route as you run along with beer involved before, during, and or after the run. You never know. I started hashing in Korea about 10 years ago and I have since hashed in almost every country I've lived in or visited, and now I'm trying to in every state. The great thing about the club, especially for a socially inept introvert like me, is that they are usually filled with really welcoming down-to-earth people and the hashes in Oklahoma were no exception. The runs are usually through random parts of a city, so you get to know areas of the place that as a visitor, or even as a local, you wouldn't otherwise ever see. Hashing, I have run through a hippodrome in Korea, a coffee field in Kenya, a market in Istanbul, and over sand dunes of a country I can't mention because the club is illegal there, because of mixed gender meetings, alcohol, and worst of all, people having fun. <gasps> It was while hashing through the hills of Bogota, Colombia, that my beautiful mutt, Boshi, attached herself to my leg. She forgot about the garbage bag she was eating from and followed me the whole hash, more than three miles all the way to the end and then to my apartment. I didn't even like dogs. In Talihua, we ran down streets bearing their names in English, in Cherokee syllabary, and their transliteration. We ran through a university campus where I was briefly questioned by the campus police along and over a stream that ran through the town, across a canal, through a park, up a green hill with the remains of an abandoned building which had been occupied by graffiti artists, frat initiations, and non-running drunks. We ran through the streets, searching for clues on the ground in the form of white clumps of flour. This way of marking a running trail with white powder once caused an anthrax panic in Chicago. Not quite the same reaction when I hashed in Colombia. We followed the trail and finally arrived to the endpoint and to the beer. After the hash, we headed to a pizzeria where I was given a refresher course on what to do in case of a tornado. You know, Oklahoma being in the middle of Tornado Alley. So, I asked, is a car good shelter? That prompted a unison response of no from the whole restaurant. Stay inside. But my car is my inside. Find the ditch and don't try to outrun it. Well, that's one problem I won't be able to run away from. The next morning, now alone, I walked around the town, retracing some of the steps of the previous day, walking down new paths and places. I read about Tahlequah and its people. Tahlequah is the capital of the Cherokee Nation, and also of the United Kituwa Band of Cherokee Indians, who were Cherokee that, voluntarily, moved to Indian territory before the forced removal. The city could have been the capital of a state, called Sequoia, named in honor of the Cherokee scholar that developed the writing system of the Cherokee language in the early 19th century, and which is still used today on street signs and in schools. It was a proposed state that would have united the land of the five civilized tribes in the Indian Territory at the beginning of the 20th century. They had already lost communal ownership of their lands, causing several land runs that had diminished their territory. 
Becoming a state was a way to better defend themselves. They did everything that was required to become a state, but Congress and President Teddy Roosevelt rejected the proposal, preferring to accept it only if it entered the Union along with the Oklahoma Territory, the western half of the now state. And so, the state of Oklahoma entered the Union in 1907. I walked up to a Confederate monument. I had already seen several Confederate monuments in Arkansas and Texas, so I didn't think much of this one, until I started reading the plaque. It was for General Stand Waite. General Stand Waite had been a Cherokee general of the Indian forces fighting for the Confederacy. He was in fact the only Indian to achieve the rank of general. One thing I knew nothing about before my journey through Oklahoma was the role of the Native American tribes in the American Civil War which started in 1861. For some dumb reason, I had always assumed they had just set it out. The Cherokee, in fact, had their own internal civil war, as some Cherokee were pro-Union while others sided with the Confederates. This split was repeated in the other Indian nations and the rest of the territory. After all, it had been the federal government that had dispossessed them after repeatedly breaking treaties. Some that would have preferred to fight for the Union didn't receive any support, and the Confederacy was promising them sovereignty, and there was the issue of slavery. They were called the five civilized tribes because they already had, or had adopted, social, economic, and political structures similar to those of the white colonists, agriculture, government, and slavery. On the Trail of Tears, they brought with them thousands of black slaves. As with the white colonists, most didn't own slaves, and most had no problem with the institution either. General Standwaite was the last general of the Confederacy to surrender, a few months after General Lee surrendered in Appomattox, Virginia. Regardless of the fact that many in Indian territory had been pro-Union, once the Civil War ended in 1865, they were forced to renegotiate their treaties with the federal government. They lost more land, their slaves were emancipated, and they were forced to recognize them as members of their tribes. I drove back to Tulsa in the afternoon, this time avoiding the toll road. For the first time, I drove down a portion of the famous and historic Route 66. There were a couple of tourist traps along the way that I managed to avoid. I spent the rest of the day in a dingy motel performing surgery on my phone. After failing to replace the cracked screen, I had to give up and order a new display. Then I had a go at my laptop. It had started malfunctioning during the trip through San Luis Potosí, episode 5, and now it was a coin flip whether it would even turn on. I know almost nothing about computers, so it's all trial and error. I managed to figure out that one of the RAM card slots was damaged, so it started working after removing the card. Now lobotomized, it started working again, slowly, but reliably. Sort of. In the morning, after squeezing through an altercation between some guests, motel management, and the police, we headed to the Greenwood District of Tulsa, a place that was once known as Black Wall Street. It got that name when the district became a center of black wealth. Its founders had come from southern states, seeking to run away from the post-Civil War repression of black people and they found a sort of haven in Indian territory, where they joined the freed slaves of the Indian nations. In fact, there was also a proposal to establish an all-black territory to which the black inhabitants of the country could move. The idea was never able to pick up steam, but many all-black towns were established, some that still exist to this day. In Tulsa, a strip of land was designated where black people could move into, after a wealthy black landowner from Arkansas bought it in 1906, and he named it Greenwood. 
That was the year before the Indian and Oklahoma territories were merged and formed the state of Oklahoma, with a state constitution that instituted segregationist Jim Crow laws. Still, many blacks from the South flocked to the area hoping to acquire newly available land and hoping to take advantage of the economic boom Tulsa was experiencing thanks to the discovery of oil in the region. The Greenwood District boomed, an enclave of all black businesses, hotels, law practices, real estate, etc. By 1921, the district had grown to almost 10,000 residents, gaining more and more economic stature, and it gained the moniker Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street was also a glaring fuck you to the white supremacists of Tulsa. And so started the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 with an all-too-familiar plotline. A white woman alleges that a black man assaulted her. The black man is arrested. A lynch mob gets ready to pretend it's justice what they are after and they try to extract the black man from the jail to lynch him. But the inhabitants of Greenwood weren't going to allow a lynching so they organized, armed themselves and set to defend the prisoner. They confronted the lynch mob at the jail. Shots were fired, and a battle ensued that saw the black defenders retreat to Greenwood, where they were surrounded and attacked by thousands of whites, aided by the Tulsa Police Department. They started fires in the buildings, then planes flew over the district, dropping crude firebombs onto the buildings. With everything becoming ash, many residents fled the city, while 6,000 were put into detention camps by the National Guard. Nobody knows for sure, but up to 200 African Americans may have been killed, hundreds injured. All the wealth of the district was destroyed. The district was ruined, but of course it wasn't the wealth they were after. It was the status of the people that lived in it. An effort was made to rebuild, but the city pushed back, as it sought to rezone the area, pushing the black residents further away. Despite this, and the lack of help from any level of government, despite all the insurance claims being denied, the district was partially rebuilt. I walked around a few blocks that still survive with some connection to the era, past a large mural on the wall memorializing Black Wall Street, around a reconciliation park, past the Vernon AME Church, one of the few buildings to survive from the 1920s rebuilding effort. I went inside the Greenwood Cultural Center. I read about the riots on the newspapers framed on the walls, looking at pictures of the survivors, of the camps, of the burnt ruins. I entered a lecture room which had fairly recent pictures and testimonials of survivors. One told of fleeing Arkansas due to death threats, leaving behind 700 acres of land only to arrive to Greenwood as the riots were starting. Another told of being a child and feeling that he was in the middle of a war only to then fight in a real war in World War II in the Pacific, having to come back to a Jim Crow state afterwards. Another told of how his father, a lawyer, had represented the black victims of the riots, searching for compensation for the damage that had been done. Although these lawsuits were basically ignored at the time, they have been instrumental in acknowledging now and documenting, over a hundred years later, the events of the riots and the horrors that brought to Greenwood. The Tulsa Race Massacre has gained a bit more attention recently. I read that a possible mass grave had been found and it was believed to correspond to the riots. I had never heard of the massacre of 1921 until I was in Oklahoma, preparing for the journey through the state. Apparently, most Americans just found out about it because it was portrayed on a TV series recently. A friend of mine, a native of Tulsa, said he had only heard about it mentioned in passing while growing up there. The worst single act of racial violence in the country's history. Well, that's what many historians say it was. Being in Oklahoma, 
I'm sure many Native American historians would disagree. But let's not play the Grievance Olympics. I spent the rest of the day walking around downtown Tulsa, not that far away from Greenwood. It was a slow walk tempered by the scorching heat. Boshi and I hopped from one shaded area to the next. We walked over a bridge which has an acoustic oddity called the center of the universe. I tried it, no echo. I tried louder, and the only oddity there was me talking to myself, which I usually don't do that loudly. The area is dotted with art deco buildings constructed with the wealth the city gained back when it was known as the oil capital of the world. I only know they're art deco because they say so, but they are pretty. I wondered what I would have for dinner and I came across a donut shop. Their maple syrup bacon bars were a thing of beauty. By this point in the trip, the hit my savings were taking was starting to become much more noticeable. I was getting some income through freelance writing, but still not enough. Then I drove past the plasma center where you can sell your blood. Great idea, I thought. I'll go around the country selling my precious bodily fluids and I'll be able to say I bled for this thing. You know, the whole blood, sweat and tears thing. You can make almost $400 a month. That's like 200 beers. Unfortunately, I was informed that you have to go to the same plasma center every time. Oh well, I got to keep my precious bodily fluids, but I was back to my original plan of funding the podcast by buying scratch-off lottery tickets. Tulsa hosts the Gilcrease Museum which is dedicated to the American West and the Americas. I meandered around the exhibitions, recognizing several pieces that I had probably seen in art books or on TV. I was looking at a large painting, I think it was a Native American bison hunt scene, when a skinny older man wearing a denim vest and sporting a huge white mustache that dangled down to his chin stood next to me. Well, he didn't really stand, it was very fidgety, and he seemed to almost dance, quickly shuffling his balance between his feet without really going anywhere. His right hand alternated between his jeans pocket and pointing at the painting. This one, he said to me. This one is really good, he shuffled. Really good. I really like this kind of art. American art, he shuffled. I don't like that European stuff, he shuffled. Why do you like this one? Why is it good? I asked, not entirely innocently. He eyed me suspiciously. An older lady was walking by. The Democrats want to give illegals free health care. They said so. She shrugged and kept walking. He shuffled to another person across the hall. I shuffled to the bronze sculptures exhibit, wondering if I should follow him just to see his reaction when he got to the Americans All exhibit, a collection by or about new immigrants and their contributions to America's cultural identity. Finally, I went to the exhibition that I was most interested in, a showcasing of all Pulitzer Prize winning photographs. Reading about the 1921 massacre in Greenwood already had me in a misanthropic mood. It turned out going to this was a horrible idea, as apparently human misery makes for great photography. I got on the road again and once again crossed the Arkansas River, and the road took me southwest to Oklahoma City. I met up with a few brothers from my fraternity, Sigma Lambda Beta, at a pickup soccer game downtown. I had never met them before, and they were still in college but they were really kind and helpful. We went out for food at a great food truck later that night, and one of the brothers let me crash at his apartment. I was once asked how a person like me could be in a fraternity. I thought they were saying I was too much of a free spirit, although maybe they meant I was antisocial and unpleasant. I didn't know what to answer at the time, but I suppose I should have answered that that was the kind of fraternity I was in. I had been away from it for a decade, yet I was still embraced and trusted by people who would otherwise just be strangers. 
The next morning, they took me to Oklahoma City's best burger joint. It's the kind of place that has a line before it's even open, in an old building, way too small for its popularity, with people behind the counter that aren't gonna take any of your shit. A beautiful place. We parted ways and I headed downtown again and went to the Oklahoma City National Memorial, which is located where once stood the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, the site of the worst act of domestic terrorism in the country's history. If there was one thing I was learning so far, is that Oklahoma superlatives aren't exactly uplifting. At 9.02 in the morning of April 19, 1995, a truck bomb which had been parked outside the building by far-right extremists was detonated, destroying the building and killing 168 people. They had targeted the federal building as retaliation for Waco and Ruby Ridge, two incidents where anti-government extremists and cultists were killed after long standoffs with the FBI. The tour through the museum takes you through the history of the building and the area, and then the events of the day, the blast, the chaos, the 16 days of rescue efforts, the criminal investigation and proceedings, and finally the memorial overlook in the responsibility and hope part of the museum. It's a gut-wrenching experience, hearing the voices of the survivors and of the family members, seeing the portions of the wreckage, the people on stretchers. Looking outside from the overlook, you can see a reflecting pool between two large bronze gates called the Gates of Time, which memorialize 902, the last point in time of peace, and 903, the first point in time of recovery and healing. Beyond the pool stand 168 empty chairs on a grassy field. I finished walking inside the memorial building and walked around the outdoor memorial. There's an American elm tree called the Survivor Tree, which somehow withstood the blast and absorbed shrapnel. Seeds are gathered every year and saplings are planted all over the country, from this now more than 100-year-old tree. I walked around the reflecting pool and the chairs from one bronze gate to the next. Tourists on one end, a few homeless people at the other. Off to the side of one of the gates a portion of the original fencing stands, with memorial objects and tributes pinned to it. On my last day in Oklahoma City I went to the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. The entrance had a huge plaster statue of The End of the Trail, a famous piece of an exhausted Indian over his exhausted horse. I had seen a small bronze version at the Gilcrease in Tulsa. This one had been exhibited in California at the 1915 Panama Pacific International Expo in San Francisco. Once finished, it was dumped into a mud pit, it was rescued and restored and finally set here. This museum is huge. I took my time walking through the exhibition halls. The West was the central theme of the works of art, some more realistic, some more abstract. Paintings by Easterners seeking to understand the American West, paintings by Europeans seeking their bit of Americana, paintings by Native Americans seeking to tell their story. I walked out of the Native American gallery and stopped as a large group of very well-dressed Indians walked down the hall. But they were definitely not Plains Indians, they were South Asian Indians. Some of the men wore kurtas and all the women wore beautiful, colorful saris. My brain went into blue screen of death as it tried to make sense of the situation. I double-checked the signage. Later, as I was exiting the place, I realized the museum complex also had an event hall, which was hosting what I think was a wedding reception. After spending three hours walking past dioramas, painting sculptures, and displays of bison hunts, clothing exhibits of cowboys and vaqueros, John Wayne, rodeos, firearms, I arrived to the barbed wire exhibit. 
I didn't know there were enough types of barbed wire for a whole exhibition, but apparently there are. This one has 1300 different strands of barbed wire on display. Barbed wire ended the American frontier. The legend of the cowboys on the open range, the cattle drives on the Chisholm Trail that took hundreds of thousands of heads of cattle from Texas to Kansas, crossing through Oklahoma. Barbed wire shut down the open range and the expansion of the railroads eliminated the need for cattle drives. I left the museum and followed the railroad from Oklahoma City north to the town of Orlando. This was the town that my great-great-grandfather ended up at after fleeing persecution in Mexico in the 1910s. It was where my great-grandfather caught up to him a few years later with his wife and where my grandmother was born. Back then it was a small railroad town, which is what they worked in since the majority of the maintenance workers for the railroad in Oklahoma at the time were Mexican. The Mexican community vanished completely from the area, driven away by the Great Depression. Some perhaps brought back during World War II to work the fields, but none stayed. None of my ancestors stayed in Oklahoma. They all moved back to the northern mountains of the Mexican state of Jalisco an area even people in the state don't know exists. I wonder how many people in Oklahoma know Orlando exists. It's never been a big town. Now only about 200 people live there. Back then some 400. I drove slowly through the town but it didn't feel friendly at all. Even if it had, there was literally nothing to stop for or at. The whole town was just a few blocks of homes, a few closed churches and that was all. Not even a gas station. I didn't see a single person. I kept going north on the same road out of town and I stopped at a historical marker on the outskirts. Its title was The Run of 89. South of this marker lay what were known as the unassigned lands, which referred to land the Indian nations had lost after being forced to renegotiate their treaties with the US after the defeat of the Confederacy in 1865. Squatters moved in periodically and were removed periodically. It wasn't until 1889 that a land run was organized by the federal government that would make 2 million acres of land available for settlement. In the days leading up to April 22, 1889, 50,000 people surrounded the territory. Here in Orlando, 6,000 people. All they had to do, when the time came, was rush in, find a piece of land they liked, stake a claim, and 160 acres would be magically theirs. At noon on that day, they all lined up on the border. A gunshot rang out and a stampede of people rushed in to find their land. These people included African Americans looking to settle away from the Jim Crow South and from their previous masters, white and Native American. The fastest people on the fastest horses reached the choicest pieces of land. Only to find out there were people already there, a claim already staked, probably grinning. These were people that had cheated by sneaking into the territory and hiding in ditches and in trees. They sprung out at noon to take the best land. These cheaters were called Sooners. And now, Oklahomans happily call themselves Sooners. It was now July 2nd, and I was ready to head west to the Panhandle, or north, to Kansas. For the sake of Boshi though, I decided to spend the 3rd and 4th of July at the Great Salt Plains State Park in Oklahoma, as fireworks are forbidden at national and state parks. The area's flatness was even more jarring by the perfectly level crops that grew on the farms that ran along the highway and the reservoirs of the park and the nature refuge. The flattest land I had ever been in was Iowa, a part of the lower plains. Here though it seemed a never-ending expanse of short grass. 
I thought the night would be dark enough to stargaze, but I was treated to several electrical storms. The lightning was incredible, constant synaptic display of electricity. July 4th came and the prohibition on fireworks was largely ignored, so Boshi again spent the night under the steering wheel. I zigzagged across the roads heading northwest, but I wasn't going to the panhandle anymore. I was off in the direction of the old cattle drives, to Dodge City, my first stop in Kansas. Thank you for accompanying me on this journey through Oklahoma. This episode was a bit of a downer, historically, but the journey was overwhelmed by the kindness of all the people I met in Oklahoma, the hashers, my fraternity brothers, the friends of friends I connected with, and random strangers. Join us for our next episode, Kansas, the Sunflower State. This podcast is also available in Spanish. This was the eighth episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your Uber driver, with your babysitter, with everybody. Also, please rate and review it on iTunes or whatever way you listen to podcasts. This podcast is supported by Leon Ramos Jewelry. Check them out at leonramos.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and the webpage, gotherepodcast.com. You can see pictures of the places that are mentioned on Instagram. This podcast was written, directed, produced, edited, and applauded by me, George Miramontes. We were here territorial markings by Boshi. Additional funding provided by Blackjack Table Number 4. Music by Kevin McLeod. Don't let anyone tell you about it. Go there.